Well, good morning. Good, morning. good to see everyone this morning in this assembly and appreciate each of you being here, those are our visitors especially. Uh, my name is Fred Dominguez. I'm filling in for Chris this morning who's been under the weather for a few days and we're all praying for him to be back to normal here very soon. Most of us are very familiar with the fact of social or class uh, consciousness and distinctions that exist in our world around us. These distinctions are often based on, on things, uh, factors that really do not depend upon the desire, the ambition, or even the ability of an individual. Uh, for example, if, <clears throat> if we lived in England, uh, we would recognize that certain people are born into the royal family, and by virtue of being born into that family, uh, they're at a higher social status uh, than the commoners. And of course, that word commoner suggests that distinction, doesn't it? A commoner is of a lower estate uh, than those born into nobility. In India, <clears throat> the system of castes in the Hindu religion have been a part of their life for centuries, and uh, people born in certain castes cannot move uh, from one caste to the other, no matter what their hope might be, or their ambitions might be, or their abilities might be. Uh, these these castes are, are ironclad. In our country, the, the social distinctions and class distinctions are less rigid than they are in some other places. Uh, they're not as openly admitted, but they do exist uh, in various ways. Uh, and, and in some cases, for example, in, in our country, in the past certainly, uh, people of certain races could not aspire to certain kinds of jobs or hope to be accepted in certain levels of society. And, and, and thankfully, that is improving and has improved uh, quite a bit in, in recent years. <clears throat> But there are still you know, those circumstances, even in our own country, where uh, there are these, these circumstances, these class consciousness, these social distinctions uh, that exist and, and separate people. And I, and I appreciated so much Robbie's prayer where he's talking about the divisions in our country. Uh, a lot of those are, of course, political, but, but they still exist also in these social and class distinctions that, that are a part of our society. For example, uh, <clears throat> on the East Coast particularly, I, I think, the idea of old money versus new money. Uh, the, the feeling that if you inherited your wealth from ancestors, you were somehow superior to the person who went out and earned that wealth uh, in the first generation. Or a college graduate with a white collar job may consider himself to be superior to the truck driver who only uh, finished high school before going into that uh, particular trade. And even sometimes in the church, we deal with class distinctions. They're a little more subtle perhaps, but, but no less real. Uh, for example, the, the PhD professor in theology may in fact consider himself or an act as though he's superior uh, to the individual man or woman in the pew whose knowledge of scripture and experience with scripture has come from personal study rather than formal education. And the result of this, of course, in all of these kinds of class distinctions is there tends to be a little bit of a disdain for the person who's in, considered to be inferior and a sense of vanity and pride in those who consider themselves to be the superior ones. And this is not a new attitude by any stretch of the imagination. Our Lord dealt with this kind of class distinction and this prejudice in his own life. And we're going to take a look at that from an incident in Mark chapter 6 this morning 
As you recall, all this year, Chris has been leading our, our worship assemblies in lessons that tell us who Jesus is. And he's done a great job in that. We've had some wonderful lessons on who Jesus is. And today, we're going to consider the fact that Jesus is more than a carpenter. So if you have your Bibles and would like to do so, it'll be up on the screen here in just a moment. But Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6 is where we're going to read to start our discussion. <clears throat> Scripture says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. This is an interesting incident in the life of our Lord. And as we read it and think about it, certain things jump out at us from the text. The first thing that we should consider as we read this text and reflect on it is that this was Jesus' hometown. This is the place where he had been raised. This is where he'd lived all of his life up to this point. Surely the people there had heard about the fame of this local boy. They had heard about the miracles that he had done. They had, in fact, witnessed some of these things already by this time. And, and as we consider that reality, of all the places where Jesus could have gone to preach, shouldn't this have been the place where he had the most sympathetic audience? Shouldn't this have been the place where the people more eagerly listened to what he had to say? Shouldn't this have been the place where folks would say, that's Jesus, he grew up here, he's one of ours, as they listened to his wise teaching? But the response of the people, as we've read from Mark's gospel, is astonishing and it's troubling. They didn't think about Jesus as the, the hometown boy who made good. It's as if they're saying to one another, who does he think he is? Who is this guy? We know who he is. What is he doing teaching these things? They questioned his teaching. They questioned his wisdom. They even questioned his miraculous works as though it just couldn't be possible for Jesus who grew up in Nazareth to do these things. This is a powerful illustration of class consciousness and the prejudice that so often accompanies it. They heard Jesus' teaching. They were duly impressed that his teaching was very wise. But the scripture says they were offended by this teaching. They were offended because it came from little Jesus who grew up in their city. They saw the miracles that he did, but they discounted them because it was Jesus who grew up in their city who was doing them. This rejection of Jesus and of his works was certainly not as viciously stated or expressed as the Pharisees did. Remember, the Pharisees at one point said Jesus was casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. What a great insult that was. 
They were terrible in their reaction to Jesus. I want you to see this morning that the reaction of the folks in Nazareth is no less hateful than that of the Pharisees who accused Jesus of doing miracles by the power of the prince of demons. Their rejection of Jesus was hateful. It was based on their prejudice. And, and their prejudice and their class consciousness turned into condescension as they dealt with him. They dismissed Jesus as a prophet because they knew who he was. And the text tells us that they knew who he was. Jesus here, you're just a carpenter. Now we don't know what the occupations were of the critics of Jesus on this occasion. But obviously they thought Jesus had overstepped his place in society. You see, prophets were men of God. Prophets were from the lineage of prophets. Prophets came from the schools of the prophets. Prophets were not tradesmen. And Jesus was a tradesman. He was a carpenter. We can imagine some of them in the crowds thinking, you know, Jesus, you need to stop embarrassing yourself by pretending to be something that you obviously cannot be. See, they knew who he was. You're the carpenter. You can't be a prophet. You're a carpenter. Class consciousness and prejudice. And this is perhaps the cruelest form of class consciousness. To hold somebody down and to ignore the good things he's doing because you just feel like, well, he's not the right person. He doesn't have the right pedigree to do these things. They obviously felt that Jesus should have known his place in society and should have stayed in that place. And his message, the good news of salvation, fell on deaf ears because they didn't believe Jesus was worthy to proclaim that message. They did something else as they're criticizing Jesus. They brought his family into the discussion. They showed their disdain by saying, well, Jesus, we know your mother. We can name all your brothers who live here. We know your sisters. You can't be this great person because we know where you came from. We know what your lineage is. We know what your pedigree is. They're saying, Jesus, you're just a common man, just like all the rest of us. Where do you think you get off saying these kinds of things to us? In their view, Jesus should stop pretending to be a prophet and get back to work supporting his mother and his family. And it's interesting, as you notice here as we're reading this text, there's no mention of Joseph at this point. This suggests to us that Joseph was already dead at this time. So Jesus, as the uh, oldest son in the family, had the responsibility under Jewish law to provide for his mother and for his underage siblings. And so we can imagine these people saying, look, your, your dad is dead, your brothers are not believers, they're not your disciples. What you need to do is get back to work here and take care of your mother and, and your family. Quit pretending to be this prophet. And of course, Jesus' brothers as unbelievers would not have supported him in this confrontation. Uh, they didn't believe in him and they probably thought he ought to come home as well. <clears throat> So these people in Nazareth, they dismiss Jesus as a prophet because the man that they saw before them, who they watched grow up in their town, just couldn't be a prophet. He didn't have the pedigree for it. And the significance of that, that rejection really cannot be overlooked. 
Because this was not the first day of Jesus' ministry. This is not the first time he, he stood up in front of people and began to pre- preach the gospel. He'd been doing this for some time. He'd been performing miracles. His fame was already widespread. He already had lots of disciples at this particular time. So the rejection of the people of Nazareth cannot be because they didn't know that he had done great things. They were unaware of the things he'd taught and done. It can only be attributed to their prejudice because of where he came from and what they knew about him. And and notice again in verse 6 there, Mark says, the Lord wondered at their unbelief. And I want us to think about those words for just a moment. It really doesn't go with this lesson, but I, I, I want us to think about this for just a moment. We need to be careful that we don't ever do anything or assume any attitude or say anything which might cause the Lord to wonder at our unbelief. These are the people who should have been among the very first to acknowledge Jesus, and he wondered at their unbelief because their their class consciousness, their prejudice against him, kept him from listening to him. And this is why Jesus could not do any miracles in there. The text says he could do no miracles, but continues on to say that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He was crippled, as it were, in his attempts to proclaim the truth because of their unbelief. In the last quarter, I taught a a section on on John, a quarter on John, and perhaps you watched that as we were streaming that on Sunday mornings, and you may recall if you observed that, that that we looked at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 every time we met, because that's the theme of this gospel. I want us to read that again, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it applies to this discussion. John said, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose for Jesus coming. That's the purpose for the miracles, to create faith in him. But where the hardness of men's hearts exists, where it makes faith impossible, Jesus didn't do miracles. He didn't waste his time doing those things. You see, he couldn't do a lot of miracles in Nazareth because people just didn't believe in him, and they weren't going to believe in him because they knew his pedigree. In the same way that the Jewish leaders kept asking Jesus for signs, well, show us a sign to prove that you are who you claim to be. They didn't believe, and they weren't going to believe, no matter what sign he did, so he didn't accommodate them. He did not do a sign just to satisfy their curiosity. And that brings us to the sad conclusion about Nazareth. The people of this city were the hometown neighbors of the long-awaited Messiah. The salvation of God had lived among them for 30 years and had returned to them, to the people whom he knew best and was with, with whom he was most acquainted, best acquainted, he'd returned to preach the good news to them. What an incredible opportunity for these people. And they dismissed it. Jesus said, you're just a carpenter. You can't be a prophet. As a result of this, it appears that Jesus spent very little time in his hometown during his ministry. We know that he he actually went to Capernaum and made that his headquarters for his ministry. Preached all through Galilee, all through Judea, even in Samaria, among the Samaritans. 
but he didn't spend a lot of time in Nazareth because the people there rejected him. And that's a great object lesson for us. If we refuse to believe in Jesus, if we do not receive him and listen to him and obey him, he'll depart from us. He'll go to those who are willing to believe in him and to receive his word, and he will dwell with them. We don't ever want to be the people that the Lord has turned his back on because we've rejected him. So the people of Nazareth thought that Jesus was nothing more than a carpenter, and they rejected him because of this conclusion. The glorious truth, however, is that Jesus not only was, but still is much more than a carpenter. We know from the testimony of Scripture, for example, that Jesus is the Son of God. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35, when Gabriel the angel testified to Mary about her pregnancy, he says, the power of God will overshadow you, and you will bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus, and he will be called the Son of God. The angel said, Mary, you're going to bear a child that is the Son of God. When Jesus was baptized, Mark chapter 3 and verse 17, as he came up out of the water, God the Father testified to that truth. He spoke out of heaven. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the Son of God. He's more than a conqueror, more than a carpenter. In addition to being the Son of God, he's also the Savior of the world. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Joseph is betrothed to Mary. He discovers that she's pregnant, and he knows it's not him. They have not yet come together. He's concerned about what he should do, and an angel appeared to him and said, don't worry about this. This is from God, because your wife is going to bear a child that has come from God, and he will be called Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Thirty years later, as the apostles were proclaiming the gospel, Peter, standing before the Jewish leaders, said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Testimony of Scripture is clear. It is unmistakable. Jesus is the Savior, the one and only Savior of the world, and this is much more than a carpenter. In the third place, Jesus is Lord. When Peter was preaching on the first Pentecost after the Lord's resurrection, he with the other apostles, he's preaching this message about Jesus, and the conclusion, as far as we're concerned, is in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. It's not all that Peter had to say, but that's where he got interrupted by the people asking what we must do. But his conclusion was this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and and Christ. Jesus himself testified to his lordship after his resurrection, appearing to the apostles. Matthew 28, verse 18, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Later on, when Paul the apostle wrote his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, he warned them that the Lord Jesus was coming again with his angels in flaming fire, wreaking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who not, do not obey the gospel. Jesus is Lord, according to Scripture, and that's much, much more than a carpenter. These are just a few things about the nature of Jesus, and we've been studying about the nature of Jesus all year long, so you can add dozens of other qualifiers here about who Jesus is. But when we consider these things, 
And these things are all true. We have to wonder at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth. We shake our heads wondering how in the world could they have rejected the Son of God when they had all this evidence before them. But before we get too hard on them, we need to take a good look at ourselves. Let's be careful that we don't make the same mistake that they did because so many around us have done exactly what the people of Nazareth did when Jesus came to speak to them. They try to minimize who Jesus is so they will not be compelled to obey him. And there are two primary ways that I'm gonna to suggest to you this morning are ways in which people try to minimize Jesus by the way that they portray him and view him. One of these is the baby in the manger. And you know, we're getting close to the Christmas season and, and, and nativity scenes are gonna be all over the city. And it's a beautiful thing to remember the birth of our Lord. And, and it's wonderful that people think about him at least at some time of the year. Um, so many who don't otherwise think about him. But consider the baby in the manger. Why is the baby in the manger so popular in society? The baby in the manger is popular because it's a position of weakness. The baby in the manger doesn't exhibit authority, doesn't exert authority upon us. The ba baby in the manger commands no obedience. The baby in the manger is safe. And if I relegate Jesus to the manger, then I'm not compelled to do the other things, the things that he commanded when he was preaching. But Jesus is more than the baby in the manger. We've just read some scripture that says he is the son of God, that he is the savior of the world and that he's the Lord. A second way in which some people try to minimize the Lord is to call him a good moral teacher. Perhaps you've heard that from unbelievers. He's a good moral teacher. <clears throat> in my view, this is a particularly condescending view of Jesus, to call him a good moral teacher, because it reduces him to the level of any other, a number of other human teachers whom we might respect or admire for their teaching ability. By equating Jesus with human teachers, we demean and deny his deity and his special place in God's redemptive plan for mankind. And here's something we have to consider when someone makes this kind of a statement about Jesus. If all he is is a good moral teacher, then certain things that he said have to be true. And if those things are not true, he can't be a good moral teacher. For example, in John chapter 8, Jesus had an extensive and very intense confrontation with the leaders of the Jews. And at the end of that confrontation, in John chapter 8, in verse 58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. Now for us reading this in English, it, it does not impact us the same way it did for those Jews who heard Jesus speak those words. Because that little phrase, I am, meant deity to them. Jesus was claiming deity. And the text tells us that they understood what he was talking about because they picked up rocks and prepared to stone him for asserting that he was the son of God, that he was deity. But if Jesus is not the son of God, then he can't be a good moral teacher, can he? Because if he's not the son of God, his own teaching contradicts his claims. To call Jesus a good moral teacher is like calling him just a carpenter. It is false and it is demeaning. Jesus is much more than a good moral teacher. As we looked at the scriptures, he is the Son of God, the Savior, and the Lord. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 15, 
Jesus asked the 12 disciples who they thought he was. He had previously asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they went through all the wrong answers the people had. He said, who do you say that I am? And they said, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And he blessed them for this profession of faith. And that profession of faith stands in stark contrast to what we've read about of the people of Nazareth who thought that Jesus was just a carpenter. We have seen what they thought of him. We have seen what the 12 thought of Jesus. People of Nazareth thought he was just a carpenter. This reaction was in response to their class consciousness and their prejudice toward him. The 12 believed he was the son of God. That was the response of trusting faith. And we know which one the Lord approved of. He approved of the response of his disciples and not of the people in Nazareth. We've also briefly looked at the testimony of scriptures as to who Jesus was and is. The scriptures testify Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the Lord. The question for each one of us to answer this morning as we reflect on these things is, what do you say about Jesus? Who is Jesus to you this morning? Because it doesn't matter what other people think about Jesus. It doesn't matter what a whole group of people like this congregation of Christians believes about Jesus. It comes down to each one of us individually. What do I say about Jesus? Who is Jesus in my view? If you have an honest heart, you cannot help but answer that Jesus is more than a carpenter. He is, in fact, the one and only Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the Lord of all. If you have an honest heart, you must obey him and make him your Savior and Lord by your obedience to the gospel. That's what these words in scripture lead us to this morning. That's the conclusion that it brings us to. And if it doesn't bring us to some kind of conclusion that works on our heart and provokes us to take action to acknowledge our faith in Jesus, then we failed in our exercise this morning. If your heart hasn't been touched by what scripture says about Jesus and about how people in his own hometown treated him, you might need to take your pulse. Because Jesus is more than a carpenter. He's more than the baby in the manger. He's more than a good moral teacher. He's the one and only son of God who gave up all the glory of heaven to come to this earth and shed his blood so that each and every one of us would have the opportunity of eternal life with God the Father. If you've not obeyed the gospel, why don't you do it today? Why don't you acknowledge who Jesus is, that he is the son of God, the Savior, and the Lord? We have a song prepared to encourage us. The elders are going to be down here to meet you if you have a need. We invite you now to come while we stand together and while we sing.